We welcome you again to Weston Park Baptist Church um, as we move through the month of June. Here we find ourselves on the third Sunday of Pentecost, continuing in our series on the Gospel of Mark and thinking of our new beginnings that we have in Jesus post-Easter. Um, with Pentecost, clearly, it's a new beginning for the church. And symbolically, it, you know, it's our time of connecting with God through the Spirit, His work in our lives, and that's always a time of, of new beginnings. So we kind of hold that idea as we continue on. Last week we looked at the startling story in Mark 9, verses 2 to 13, of the transfiguration of Christ, or the transformation, metamorphosis, we get that word from metamorpho, of Christ being transformed before Peter, James, and John on the mount of transfiguration, maybe Mount Tabor, maybe Mount Hermon, but that amazing, wondrous story of, of the disciples seeing Christ in his glory. And we recognize that even as Christ was transformed, we have this great hope, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, that we also will be transformed and glorified into the likeness of Jesus, his body. So it's a wonderful message of hope in a world which is crazy, a world full of violence and war that we experience now, we, we carry on in the message of hope and that ultimately God will make all things well, as Julian of Norwich said so long ago. So after that amazing story then and, um, on the mount, Jesus comes down the mountain with his disciples. We saw that he engaged them in conversation to explain the event. And now we carry on um, with Jesus, traveling with his disciples at this point, heading back down to Capernaum, eventually to Jerusalem. So we pick up the text in verse 30 of Mark 9. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. He did not want anyone to know it, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is to be betrayed into human hands, and they will kill him. And three days after being killed, he will rise again. But they did not understand what he was saying and were afraid to ask him. So we, we have this story of Christ teaching his disciples as they are traveling. And so that's, that's important to note. In verse 31, it talks about him teaching his disciples. He was teaching. And in the Greek language, there is a particular past tense, which is imperfect, which means an ongoing action in the past. So when it says Jesus was teaching, he was teaching his disciples, it means then that it is not a one-time event, it's not a one-off, but the practice of Jesus here, his habitual action, was to be teaching his disciples. So as they journeyed, Jesus was teaching them. And it shows that his teaching is constant. Even as his teaching to us as disciples today, it's an ongoing relationship with Jesus that is constant. That's the way it's to be. 
So Jesus was teaching them. And particularly, he was speaking to them of his passion that was coming up. Disciples were having a hard time understanding this. So we saw back in, in Mark 8 that there was a passion prediction. There's three passion predictions in the Gospel of Mark. That was the first, and here's the second. And what's different about this one is it says that Jesus was to be handed over, which means he was going to be betrayed, verse 31. He was handed over. First time Mark uses that language. So he is to be handed over, note, into the hands of men and women, into the hands of humanity. And so when we think of betrayal, well, of course, that includes Judas. Judas betrayed Jesus, first of all. We're also told that the, the religious leaders, if you like, are part of that handing over. But the way it's phrased, he was handed over to men and women, it also points to our own involvement in the death of Christ. Christ was handed over to the arms and hands and actions of humankind, past and present. So if you like, we are part of that action, that kind of resistance to Jesus and to his message about the kingdom of God. We are not free of all of that. We are part of that. We, we know it in ourselves, our own activity, self-centered activity, thinking of ourselves, our own ego, our resistance to Jesus. All of, all of that is the spirit that ended up crucifying Christ. So it, when Mark uses that language, it is intentional, and it's speaking to our lives and not just the actions of Judas many years ago. So our, our engagement. And so here we have then this, this second um, passion story. Let's just read it. He was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man, reference to himself, is to be betrayed into human hands. And they will kill him, and three days after being killed, he will rise again. But they did not understand what he was saying and were afraid to ask him. So betrayed, that's the new piece. Here, in this passion narrative, it doesn't tell us actually how Jesus was going to be killed. It doesn't mention the cross. It just says that he will be killed, and then he will rise. And Judas, the religious leaders, others, ourselves, we are part of that action. So there, there is mystery involved in this passion prediction. We don't, we don't get it all. But what we know is that God was at work in Jesus' life and death and resurrection that ultimately is for our good, it is for our salvation, it is for our redemption, God working in Jesus for us. And even though we don't get it all, there's a mystery to it, we do know that God was working in Christ in all of that passion narrative, ending with his resurrection and ascension, glorification, 
but it, it, has, it is for the purpose of our salvation. That's, that's a good news story. In fact, it all hinges on this piece. And whether we get it all, whether we understand it all, that, that doesn't matter. The, the work was done for us, and it has ongoing implications. And that, that's the reason for our hope. Because Christ was raised, we will be raised. That's the truth. And so it's interesting that Jesus keeps emphasizing and teaching. He was teaching on this, and we're told that the disciples had a time, hard time understanding it. Verse 32, but they did not understand what he was saying and were afraid to ask him. It goes back to Peter's point where Peter rebuked Jesus when he raised the first prediction and said, no, 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 that can't happen to you. And remember how Jesus spoke to him strongly, get behind me, Satan. So here, the second time it happens, the disciples are cautious to say anything, but they still don't understand it. And so we don't necessarily understand it all either, but the work and the event happened for us and for our hope and for our life. In Mark 10, it says that Jesus' life was given as a ransom for many. And we will have the third prediction in Mark 10. And so it's a good news story. But the disciples still don't understand it. So that's, that's the first scene. That's the scene of Jesus' teaching. And then they finally reach uh, Capernaum, and there Jesus takes the disciples into a house. We're not sure which house, Peter's house. Maybe Christ had his own house in Capernaum. Don't know for sure. And he says to the disciples, and here's the second scene, like, okay, guys, what were you talking about? What were you arguing about on the road while we were coming here? And the disciples are rather bashful about it all because they actually had been arguing, well, who amongst ourselves will be the greatest with Christ in the new kingdom that is coming? Here we read the text, starting in verse 33. Then they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the way? But they were silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down, calls the twelve, and says to them, whoever wants to be first must be last of all and servant of all. So Jesus <clears throat> thinks this is a very important situation, and he wants to speak into it. So when he asks, he knows that they had been arguing, and they'd been arguing about status and rank. And when we hear that, we think, well, that, that's pretty strange. You know, like, why, why would a group be arguing about such things? You know, we would think that's kind of a bit crazy. You know, why would they be doing that? But in Jesus' day, it, wasn't, it was not unusual because it was a society based on hierarchy and where status and rank was very important. In fact, we know that in other religious circles, the Qumran community, which we get the Dead Sea Scrolls from, it's interesting that everybody in that community was ranked from number one to the very bottom. So everybody knew where they stood in the ranking of the community. So it wasn't as unusual as we think of when we hear it 
It's a status society. It's hierarchical. And so they're arguing about it. And what's interesting is that Jesus speaks into that situation. He sits down as teacher, which means he's taking up the formal position of a teacher, and he speaks into it and says, that's not the way it is in this new kingdom of heaven. It's not about status. It's not about ranking, but it is about how you serve others and indeed love others. Verse 35, important verse, he sat down, called the 12, and said to them, whoever wants to be first of all must be last of all and servant of all. If you want to be first, then you must be a servant, and indeed you are last of all because you are serving them all, even as Jesus served and washed the feet of his disciples in the upper room, Gospel of John. So Jesus cuts to the chase here and says, hey, our attitude is very important and it is not the same as the way the world goes. It's not the same as the Roman perspective or the Greek perspective. We are serving one another. That's what we are called and that's what the kingdom of God is about. And so his word is a challenge to us and to them. It's a challenge to how we make our priorities. It's the challenge on what our values are. It's a challenge to how we define success. In our world, success is often defined by, by numbers, how big something is, or how much money there is in the budget. In fact, churches can get drawn into this too. People want to know how big the church is. How big is your church? How many people go there? How much money do you have? Why? Because that's how the world looks at it. In fact, we as Christians often play by the same rules. Universities play by the same rules. Christian universities play by the same rules. How big are you? What's your budget? What's your ranking? McLean's Magazine does a a piece every year on the 100 top universities in the country of Canada and where you are in each category, big size, middle size, small size. Are you the best? Where are you? That's how our world works. And Jesus is saying that may be the way the world works, but that's not how the kingdom of God works. Remember the story when the widow comes into the temple and gives her her mite, her just a couple of pennies into the into the account box. And Jesus says, hey, that woman has given more than all the rest. And the disciples are thinking, well, how can that be? Other people have given, written big checks. She's given a few pennies. And Jesus says, she has given more. Why? Because the world system is different. So it addresses our priorities, addresses our values as a community, a faith community, but also as us as individuals our own heart, our own spirit of service and of love to others. And then Jesus gives a, an enacted parable to show it. Note, verse 36, then he took a little child and put him or her among them. And taking it in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes not me, but the one who sent me. So as he teaches about this new approach of service and love, he takes a child and says, 
As you welcome a little child like this, you welcome me and Abba who sent me. Now this example, this story is used a variety of times in the Gospels and again it is used in Mark 10, the next chapter, and there it speaks about us having the attitude of humility, to be humble like a little one, to be innocent like a little one, to be pure. But we note here that is not the emphasis. The emphasis here is whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. It's a welcoming spirit. It's a hospitable spirit. It is not a judging spirit. It is not a critiquing spirit. It is welcoming the one who comes, the little one, not just a child, but anyone who's on the margins. Anyone who has no power, no status in our world, who's not seen as some great person, welcoming that person in Christ's name, then we are getting at the attitude of love and service and compassion that Jesus is using. In chapter 10, yes, it speaks about humility, but it's not doing that here. And so it speaks to our own reality. How receptive are we? How do we greet others? It's interesting the Jesuits had a, had a saying back in the 1700s that everyone who enters these doors or gates, they will be received as Christ. That was what they had over their doors. Everyone will be received as Jesus, meaning you will be received, you will be welcomed, you won't be judged, you won't be critiqued, you won't be kept out, you won't be put down. And so it speaks to our own spirit of welcome, receptiveness, of saying yes, and particularly yes to those who are on the margins. So we have to watch it, you know, even in our own church. It's easy, you know, some people come in and we get all excited and we say, oh yeah, yeah, we, we really hope they stay. And then someone else can slip in and sit on the side who isn't maybe as interesting to us, and we just dismiss or hardly even recognize our indifference. Jesus is saying that that's not the way of the kingdom of God. That's the way the world works. So how receptive are we? The child in Jesus' day had no legal standing. That's why the child is used here. But all the others who are on the margin. How receptive and loving are we to them? And so that, that's, that's how the second story goes. And we're called to be servants of all, to have a servant heart, not an indifferent heart, not to be so caught up in our own comfort and convenience that we, we just don't really worry about anybody else. Jesus says, no, we are to have a servant heart to work together, to be welcoming, to be welcoming of the other believer, other Christians, not to be judging, not to be critiquing, but welcoming even when we have differences. Note how this whole unit ends uh, in verse 50. Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. The whole end of this unit says be at peace 
with one another, in-house language, be at peace with one another in the community of faith, be at peace. Be at peace with those who have different opinions, different perspectives. To show a welcoming spirit, not just to the stranger, but to those who are in the midst of your church community, welcoming. That's the second unit as we go on. And then it ends, and I would just say briefly, here we hear the, it's an example really, from Mark to the readers. John, one of the disciples, indeed this first time we hear of him speaking up, John said to him, to Christ, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him for no one who does a deed of power in my name will be able soon afterwards to speak evil of me. Whoever is not against us is for us. So John is saying, hey, we saw people acting in your name, but they weren't part of our group, so we tried to put them down to hinder them so they wouldn't use your name, even though they were doing miracles. John raises that question, and Jesus' response is, hey, no. We are to show love. We are to show service. And he ends in verse 41, For truly I tell you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you bear the name of Christ will by no means lose the reward. So Jesus is saying, don't put them down just because they're not part of our group. If they are working in my name, then they are doing good work. Support them, encourage them, even though you don't know them. To show love to them. In the church world, it means don't put everybody else down. If they're of another denomination, another type of church, it's not about comparison, it's not competing with one another. We're all in the same boat. We're all working for God, whether or not we are the same stripe. So hear what Jesus is saying. Different denominations can work together. Jesus is saying, love, support, don't critique. How can we work together in our world to make it a better place, a place of shalom? Someone has noted, you know, the world is round, and it's interesting, you can be on a point and start out in different directions, but ultimately, if you keep going, you come up and you meet each other. The world is round. You start out in opposite directions, and then you meet. And that's the way it is in life, too. That we can go in different ways, but ultimately, come around and be united and meet. And so it takes a gracious spirit, a compassionate spirit, a loving spirit, and Jesus is using even this, and Mark is using this story to exemplify our own spirit of being hospitable and receptive and welcoming and loving and kind to others, even as Christ embraces this little child. He says, welcome them in my name. And then, yes, be humble like them. We'll see that. But it begins with being receptive and welcoming, compassionate, patient, kind, merciful, forgiving, life in the spirit in the season of Pentecost, saying yes, that's who we are called to be, a community of faith driven by love. Where there is no love, put love and you will find love. That's to be our response, not judging and critiquing, 
saying hurtful things. That's the way of the world, not the way of Christ. May we hear his words. May we say yes. May we find new beginnings in this time of Pentecost by offering love to others and a smile to others and friendship to others, even when they're not part of our group, your group. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.